chapter 13. And we're going to cover the last of seven parables that we've been looking at this morning. In the last couple of weeks, we're going to be closing up this section here on the parables that deal with the kingdom. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, this deals with the parable of the net. And uh, we'll be looking at those verses. But if I had to subtitle this message, I would probably title it The Reality of Hell. And um, as we read through this parable, you can follow along beginning in verse 47 of Matthew chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure new things and olds. old. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. Our Lord spoke probably about hell more than any other subject. If you go through the Gospels, if you're familiar with his ministry, over and over and over and over again, he brought up the topic of hell. Unfortunately, the topic of hell isn't raised much in churches today. Even in Matthew 23, verse 33, when he was addressing the Jewish leaders of his day, he says, Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So hell was something that definitely existed in the mind of Christ. And I think the good reason that he knew it existed is because he created it. In Colossians, we're told that the Lord created everything that we see before us. But it seems strange, in a way, to hear those kind of words coming from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we don't associate him with hell as we should because it was a very major topic in his sermons and his discussions and everything he talked about. He talked about hell more than he did about love. He talked about hell more than he did about forgiveness. He talked about hell more than any of all the other preachers in the Bible combined. Christ brought up the subject of hell. And so if we were to model our preaching after his, we should learn a couple lessons. Hell should be within our theme on a regular basis. Unfortunately, today in our churches, it's not. Some people, you talk to them about hell and they say, well, I, I look forward to dying. And, you know, they're not living for the Lord and they're doing their own thing. And you say, well, why, why do you look forward to dying? Well, because I'm going to go to hell and party with all my friends. How many of you heard that? You've heard that all the time, right? I mean, people say that all the time. And that's so sad because that is such a deception of what the Bible says hell will be like. Hell is not a fun place. Trust me, it's not a fun place. One writer wrote this. He was 
he, he wrote about hell. And here's what he said. There is no way for us to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in the wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to even come close to matching that of the mildest of hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern, cavern of unending flame, and he would not even brush in fancy the nearest edge of hell. In Matthew 13, here before us in 47 to 52, our Lord tells his closing parable and he warns the folks about a place called hell. Now remember, in Matthew 13, the Lord is explaining parables that have to do with the time period between his rejection and his return, between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming. He's using these parables to say this is what it's going to be like. And the reason he had to explain it is because they didn't see this time period. The Jewish people thought, okay, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to lay down the rule, and that's it. His kingdom will be established. They didn't know that there was going to be these thousands of years in between, as we know the church age to be. And so Jesus needed his disciples to understand one thing, that, hey, the kingdom, is, it's going to be here now, but it's going to be mediated through you guys, through the church on earth. And we've seen how the mediated kingdom on earth now, God allows both good and evil, to grow together. That was the first parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he's tolerating the evil in the world that we see today for a period of time. But eventually, eventually there's going to come a time, the Bible speaks of a time of judgment, a time when he will set all things in order. We have seen the parables that describe the nature of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and even last week we looked at how their question was, well, okay, this kingdom looks pretty good. How do we get it? The personal appropriation of the kingdom. And we discussed all that. Well, now he closes after giving all that good information about the kingdom. And he talks about a place of eternal separation of the damned from the redeemed. Thousands upon thousands of people will die today in the United States. Some die of natural death, some die in automobile accidents, some die in motorcycle accidents, some die in plane crashes, who knows? People are going to die. And a majority of those people, unfortunately, are going to enter a place called hell. And that is hard for us to conceive. It's hard for us to understand. But that's what the Bible says. It says, few are those that find the narrow gate. So that indicates that the majority of people 
that we know maybe on a daily basis don't have a secured place in heaven. They're on their way to the unfortunate place of torment and hellfire and brimstone called hell. Well, he paints a picture here for us, a rather clear picture in this parable. And look at with me as we look at the parable in verse 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like, that's why you know it's a parable, a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. Now, imagine, here's Jesus with his disciples. These guys, most of them are fishermen, ex-fishermen, whatever you want to call them. Fishing was just a staple of their life. They ate fish. They went fishing almost on a daily basis. They were always fishing. And the imagery that Jesus always used in the parables were ones that he would relate to. You know, he's not going to sit down. If Jesus were here today, he wouldn't sit down today with a computer engineer, okay, and use an illustration about... um, you know, football or something. He wouldn't do that. He would use something that that person is familiar with, that that person can relate to. And that's what he did then. And fishing was a very common practice in the Lord's time. And it's still a very common practice over there on the Sea of Galilee. You can see people fishing all the time. Some of the disciples were fishing. So they totally understood where he was going with this parable. Well, you have to understand, back then there's basically, and still today, there's three ways that they would fish in that culture. First way, they would fish with a hook, a line and a hook. Some of you enjoy fishing, and that's probably more than likely how you fish. You go out, you get your fishing rod, and you put some bait or a lure on the end. You cast the thing out there, and you wait for the fish to bite. In Matthew 17, verse 27, Christ brings up that kind of fishing. He's talking to Peter about paying taxes for the two of them. And he says, go to the sea and cast a hook. That's what he says in Matthew 17. And take up the fish that comes out and out of the mouth, you're going to find a piece of money and take it and give it to the proper authorities. See, a line and a hook was used in that method of fishing. Well, there's a second kind of fishing that they they used, and it was called casting a net. Casting a net. And when the Lord came upon Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4, verse 18, remember when we looked at that, They were casting a net into the sea. That's probably what they were doing. This casting net was a very special kind of net. I actually went online and and I got a picture of it. It's right there. And it's this, this round circular thing. And on half of it are weights and the other half are buoys. And what you do is they put it over their shoulder, and there's actually, you can go on YouTube, and there's this guy casting one of these nets in his yard in Florida or something, I don't know. But it was kind of, he was pretty good at it. And they put part of it and, and over their shoulder, and they put the line in their mouth, and they throw this thing, and it goes out like a pancake, and it lands on the water. And then they have a, a string that's attached to that net. And as they pull that string, the net kind of comes together, the, the weighted part on the bottom and the floats on the top, and it comes together like this, and it pulls everything right into that little net as he draws in the line. And that was a method that was used very common back then. And uh, the net would hit a large body of a circle of water and just everything within that net would be caught. And the Lord had that in mind when he called the disciples to be fishers of men. He uses that same word. See, that's what's so neat about the Greek language. There's different words for different kinds of nets. There's different words for different kinds of fishing utensils. And this is a certain word that has in 
mind that kind of a net. He wanted the disciples to throw their nets and catch men for Christ. Now, there was a third method of fishing used. And I don't have a picture of it, but imagine one of those things on a lot bigger basis. Sometimes they could be almost a half a mile in circumference. And they would take a section of the net, and same thing, it was this huge net, and they would tie part of it to the shore of the sea. And on the top there would be buoys to keep the net afloat, and on the other half of the net there would be weights. And they would take the other part and they'd begin to row out in the boat, out in like a bay or out in the ocean. And they would take this net, part of it's tied to the shore, and they'd get out and they'd draw it tight, quarter mile, half mile out. And then they'd start to circle the boat around this big bay, and they'd come back and they'd end up where they started. And they basically would catch everything. I mean, sometimes you go fishing with a hook and you catch some weird things. Have you ever caught something weird fishing with a hook? I mean, I've caught some weird things. I remember one time back in Pennsylvania, your first day of trout season, and snuck up on this pool, and, you know, there's tons of people all around and stuff, but there was nobody fishing this pool. I couldn't figure out why, so I thought, well, I saw a fish down there. So I'm trying to get this fish to bite. Sure enough, this fish bites, and I'm thinking, oh, I got a big trout. I pull it, and it's one of those suckers. Have you ever seen a sucker? They just kind of, oh, disgusting looking. I didn't take the hook. I just cut the line, and ugh, it ruined my day. You know, here I'm thinking I'm reeling in a big trout, and it was, a, it was a sucker. Sometimes you catch things that you just don't want. And this, this form of fishing, they called it using a drag net. Using a drag net. It's a completely different kind of net than the little net that they would just throw out. And its purpose was different. Um, Lenski, in one of his commentaries, said that some of these nets, as I said, cover a half, over a, uh, one half of a mile. And uh, they couldn't be used just by one man. They had to have a team of people that would do it. Well, when the Lord spoke of casting a net, when he told the disciples, you go cast your net, he always used it in a positive way. When he was talking about just the, the little circular net that they would throw out, like in Matthew 4.19, when he went, told them to go out and be fishers, uh, catching men for Christ. But when he spoke of the dragnet, which is a completely different word, he wasn't talking about fishing for Christ. He was talking about gathering people together for judgment. Big difference. And the Lord emphasized two important things in verse 47. First of all, was the size of the net. It was immense because of the word he used. That's a big net. And also the catch, it says there was all-inclusive. It says it gathered some of every kind. See, when you threw the little net out, you would find a pool of fish, and you'd throw it over there, and then you'd get those fish. You knew pretty much what you were going to get. But with a drag net, I mean, you'd pick trash up. You'd pick all sorts of things. And that brings us to verse 48 in Matthew 13. It says, You'd gather some of every kind, which when it was full, the net, they drew to the shore and they sat down. And what they do? They gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Now, the disciples completely understood what Jesus was saying. If you were going to transport something in your boat, want to take up space. You didn't want it to be some fish that you wouldn't need or a piece of trash. You'd throw all that stuff out. But the good stuff you'd put in the, in the, in the boat and they'd have holding tanks and sometimes they could even, you know, keep them alive or whatever until they got to market, things like that. 
but they threw away the bad things. So that's kind of the, the, the picture of this parable. That's what he's wanting them to see. Now let's look at the principle involved here, and that's in verse 49. It's kind of a simple story. Any fisherman would understand this, but in verse 49, he kind of draws in the application for the parable. Verse 49, he says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. See, there's a lot of different things you could say about this parable. But the Lord is, remember, a parable is a story that is a spiritual story that's laid down along something that's physical, something that's tangible that you can look at. Here it's fishing. And he lays down this parable alongside the idea of fishing and he uses the imagery of fishing to draw out a spiritual truth. The difference between a parable and an allegory, an allegory you'd sit down and you'd say, oh, I wonder what the line means. I wonder what the hook means. I wonder what the net means. I wonder what this means. A parable, he's only teaching one spiritual truth. He's using a story to drive home one spiritual truth. And it has nothing to do with necessarily the fishing here. But the conclusion he draws, he emphasizes the aspect of the parable is this picture of angels separating the good from the bad at judgment. That's what he wanted them to see. He wasn't just giving them a fishing lesson. Remember, during this kingdom period, good and evil exist together. That was foreign to their mind, that God would tolerate evil in his kingdom. So he wanted them to know that there's going to come a time when he will separate those who are subjects of the king from those who are not. And little by little, it's even kind of imperceptible at times, silently, God is moving through the seas of time, and he's drawing that huge net in toward the shore. And he's bringing all of the men onto the shores of eternity for that inevitable separation. That's why the parable says there gathers some of every kind. In other words, the sum of this net gathering is just basically all-inclusive. The net draws in all kinds of fish. It's indiscriminating. And so he says in verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like that net that moves silently through the seas of life, through the seas of time, And by the time people awaken to realize what God is doing, they've already been brought up to the shore and they're already being separated. By then, it's too late. Now, the only spiritual application here the Lord makes from the parable is the separation process on the shore. He doesn't comment really on anything else. And so we want to focus on this process that he talks about. Well, first of all, when is this process going to happen? When is the time of separation? The time of separation. It says there in verse 49, it will be at the end of the age. That's when this is going to happen. The judgment of man will occur when Jesus returns to earth and he sets up his glorious kingdom physically here on earth. Now, he's not trying to pinpoint chronologically every element of judgment. He didn't specify here whether he's talking about the great white throne or, or the beam of judgment, whatever. He's not talking about those things. He's talking in general. He's just making a general statement that says to his disciples, you know what? In the end, 
Everybody's going to be gathered together and the good's going to be separated from the bad. There'll be a day of judgment. And it will happen at the end of the age. Well, who's going to be doing these, this separation? And we've commented on this in a previous message, I think. Verse 49 says it's going to be the angels. They're God's agents of separation here in this time. They're the ones that are going to separate good from evil. Um, they're also mentioned as the separators in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That's when we commented on it once before. But the Bible makes it clear that the angels will be the agents of God's judgment. Over and over again, you can, you can read that in Matthew 24, 31, Matthew 25, 31, Revelation 14, it's 18 and 19. But God is going to tolerate good and evil growing together in his kingdom for right now. That's what's going to happen. But the time of separation is moving closer and closer and closer every day. Jesus also spoke of the separation of believers and unbelievers in Matthew 25. In verse 31, 32, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, there you have the angels again, then shall he sit upon the throne of glory and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them from one another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels place of hell in john 5 25 jesus said that there's going to be a coming resurrection of all men and he mentions there he says some unto the resurrection of life and some unto the resurrection of damnation see we may not understand this clearly all the time but we have to understand that we all have eternal life you don't just go to the 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 grave and rot and that's the end. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, everybody has eternal life. The question is, where will you spend it? Will you spend it with God and glory in the presence of Him and Jesus and other saints? Or will you spend eternity in a place called hell? That, by every indication, is not a fun place. Some people wonder why Jesus taught the parable here at the end. And I think really because he had compassion on the people. He wanted them to understand that, okay, look, I told you all this good stuff about the kingdom, but you still have to remember, if you're not going to personally appropriate my kingdom, there's something waiting for you. He wanted to warn men about hell. That's why he said, watch, therefore, for you don't know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. In other words, you better get ready now. Don't put it off another second. Jesus cautioned people not to take their sins lightly because inevitably they will be accountable before God. He said that there's going to come a time when men would live as they did in the days of Noah. It says that in Luke 17. And that judgment would follow soon after. 
All you have to do is look around, beloved. Just look around at our society. Look at how far we've fallen from the standards of what God says, let alone the standards that were, this nation was founded on. See, everybody says, well, we need to get back to the standards that the, the nation was founded on. Well, that's great, but let's get back to the standards of the Bible. That's what really counts. And through John the Baptist, as his prophet, he said that he would come to burn the lost with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3.12. See, when Jesus looked around at the people around him, in Matthew 9 and following chapters, he saw a harvest that was moving toward this judgment time. His heart was filled with compassion because he knew these people were quick on their way to damnation. Jesus showed his compassionate heart for the men by warning them of the inevitable separation of the good and the evil. Eventually it's going to happen. Make sure you're on the right side. And he uses this parable of the dragnet to explain that to them. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God is not willing that any should perish. We have to understand, God does not take some sick pleasure in seeing the wicked die. That's not the God we serve. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, The heart of God, the desire of God, is that to have all men saved. That's his desire. That's not his obvious direct will. But it's his desire. We see where Jesus would weep over Jerusalem. Oh, he wants them to come together as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, but he says, you won't do it. You refuse. He also said to the Jewish people in John 5, 40, you will not come to me that you might have life. See, he was offering them eternal life. He was offering them forgiveness based on his sacrifice. And the reason Jesus warns us here about hell is because he loves us. He loves his disciples. He wants the people, even in that culture, to understand that hell is a real place. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. And this net is moving through the world unseen. If you know anything about fishing, when you pull up close to a fish with a net and it touches the fin of that fish, what's that fish do? It darts, right? It takes off. The creature simply swims a little further ahead, thinking, okay, now, I'm, now I'm, I'm, I'm out of the net. Imagine this big net being hauled in by the Lord. Once in a while, that net will touch somebody. Oh, what was that? And they, they, they push on into their own deal, their own way, their own enjoyment. And they don't feel the net touching them anymore, and they think, oh, now I'm free. But they're not. They're caught in an incredible net it's going to drag them to shore. Eventually, they'll find themselves hitting the part of the net that's in front of them. And all of a sudden, they'll realize in a panic, there's nowhere to go. What am I going to do? And they'll make a wild dash to escape, and they're going to find themselves totally surrounded in the net of judgment. And finally, they'll be dragged onto shore See, men may not see God moving in the world, but he is moving. He is working. 
when they're touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, or they become scared by the threat of judgment, most people will dart away into the freedom that they know, thinking, ah, I still got time. I'm young, I still got time. But sooner or later, beloved, they're going to find themselves caught in the net that is moving them toward judgment. And the Bible indicates that this net will eventually, the kingdom will eventually ultimately engulf all men. And then God will separate them with his angels. But what happens after they're separated? Verse 50 tells us, it says the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. Well, what happens then? Look at what it says in verse 50, a picture of the peril of hell. And cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is probably one of the most horrifying verses in the Bible. I mean, if there's any doctrine, personally, if I could do away with any doctrine, that just, you know, if I was God and I just want to do away with something, I'd do away with hell. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a horrible place. It's a horrible place. But hell can't be eliminated. You can't eliminate it from the Bible. Unfortunately, a lot of churches today eliminate it from their messages. They eliminate it from their services. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about judgment. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about forgiveness. Or they talk about forgiveness. That's about all they talk about. Forgiveness and love, forgiveness and love. They don't talk about repentance. You know, all, it's, it's, the gospel is so dumbed down today. And the whole purpose is just to meet the felt needs of the people who are in their meeting together so that they can maintain their critical mass, so that if they maintain their critical mass, then they can meet the next month's budget because the offerings would be big. And that's the whole purpose. They just got a big show going and they got a monster and they got to feed it. And thousands upon thousands of people are on their way to hell because they're not warning them. The wicked, it says, will be cast into the furnace of fire. I mean, think, this is the Lord Jesus Christ saying these words. Can you imagine the disciples? They're probably just like, whoa, this is what he's saying. Terrified. He spoke more of hell than any other subject. People probably wouldn't listen to anybody else teach on hell as much as Jesus did. Let's look at this discussion of hell. Turn over to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. I just want to run through a couple verses where he mentions hell. Read what Jesus said about hell in Matthew 5. Look at verse 21. Whoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of what? Hell fire. In verse 29, same chapter, Matthew 5, Verse 29 and 30, If your right hand offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's profitable for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, not that your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand offend it, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and that your whole body, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. A couple chapters over, Matthew 8, 12. The sons of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of hell. Matthew 11, 
verses 20 and 24. Then he began to upbraid the cities in which most of the mighty works were done because they repented not. Jesus, in other words, he condemned the people who did not repent of their sin and he said that they would go in verse uh, 21-24 to hell because they rejected his works. In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, he said, but every, I tell you, every idle word that men shall speak, shall give, they shall give an account in the day of judgment. For by your words thou shalt be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Condemned where? In hell. He talked about it in Matthew 23. He talked about it in, in uh, uh, Matthew 25. He talked about it in Mark 9, in Luke 6, in Luke 12. Even in Luke 16, he told a story about a rich man that died and went to hell. And the man was in such torment that he screamed for Abraham to send Lazarus with water to cool his tongue. Hell is not a fun place. Based on the example of Christ, the emphasis on preaching should be on hell. It should be a place of judgment. So many times we get to God's grace and we get to God's forgiveness before we ever tell people about hell. And so we have people making, quote, professions of Christ because who wouldn't want to die and be in heaven with Jesus and have all our sins forgiven? And I mean, who wouldn't want that? It'd be like me coming to your house this afternoon with a brand new car saying, here, this is a gift. And you come in and say, well, I don't want it. <laughs> it's not my color. You know. It'd be, it'd be silly to do that. So many times, people need to be convicted of their sin. They need to understand their need of a Savior before they appropriate salvation. So it's a, it's a horrifying place. But he gives a little description of hell in the scriptures. And I just want to leave with you four truths about hell. Four truths about hell this morning. First of all, it's going to be a place of punishment. It's going to be a place of punishment. Hell is a place of unrelieved torment and horrible misery. Uh, the Bible describes it as utter darkness, outer darkness in Matthew 8. It's a place of impenetrable darkness. Um, when I was a youth pastor, we took some kids down to Southern California, and one of the things we did is we took them to a place, um, I think it was Southern California, called uh, Caverns, one of those caverns, Calaveras Caverns or someplace. And uh, I remember we, you go way down in this thing, you walk through this thing, and you see all these stalactites and stalagmites and all sorts of tights and all sorts of things. And you get down there, and you're, you're down in the earth. And the guy goes, just to give you an example of what darkness really is like, I'm going to turn the, pic the lights off for 30 seconds. Now, nobody can move. You've got to stand right where you're at. And I'm just going to turn. I'm not going to dim them. I'm actually going to turn everything off. And he turned that light off. I mean, you could not, you, you could go like this, and you could not see anything, nothing. And for like maybe five seconds, it's like nobody breathed. It was just like dead silent. Now, you know, I got a, probably about 20, 30 junior high and high school kids, you know. They weren't messing or nothing, man. They were just like, and 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 
When the kids, uh, can you turn the light on? Can you turn? 20 seconds. 20, it seemed like an eternity to stand in that darkness where you couldn't see anything. And that was only 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Can you imagine the horrific torment of being in a place of utter darkness forever, for eternity? Experts say that if you're in darkness too long, you can actually go insane. It will drive you insane. It's a place of darkness. There'll be no hope of ever seeing light. There's, I mean, there is hope, you know, 15 seconds into it. I mean, even I'm going, okay, he's going to turn the light on pretty soon. <laughs> Can you imagine being in a place where there's never, ever, ever going to be any hope of ever seeing any light ever again? Utter darkness. The Bible also says that it's a place of fire. Matthew 25, 41. But you know what? The fire in hell is not like the fire we're used to. It's not like the fire that we use to burn something or to heat our food on our stove or on our barbecue. That's not the kind of fire we're talking about. God uses the word fire to describe hell as a place of torment. A place where there'll be no relief from suffering. Have you ever been burned like pretty severely. I know that when I was little, my sister, I come to find out, I thought it was my mom, but it was actually my sister that you met a couple weeks ago. She was drawing a bath for me, and she, I don't know if she forgot or whatever, she forgot to turn on the hot wa cold water, she just turned on the hot water. I think I was two, or, I don't know where my wife is, two or three at the time. And uh, she left the bathroom, and obviously I thought, well, I'll get in the tub, and I fell in this scalding hot water. And it literally took all the skin off my hand, my fingers, everything. And I have pictures of me in these mitts because they had to take every finger and treat it and wrap them in, all individually. And I had like these little boxing mitts on. I don't remember it, but I, I see pictures of it. And I'm glad I don't remember. <laughs> because that must have been painful. I mean, I just burn myself on the stove or you burn your tongue on something. You know, and it's, it's a pain that, you know, you cut yourself, you put a Band-Aid on, the pain kind of goes away. But a burn, it just kind of doesn't, just kind of linger. And you can't really do anything. I mean, other than maybe take morphine or something if it's very, very severe in the hospital. But can you imagine being in that form of torment where you're being burned But it's, it's, it's still worse. In one of the parables in Luke 16, I already mentioned, uh, the rich man cried out to send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his water, finger in water and cool my tongue. So it's not just the outside, it's even within. I mean, what a horrible place. And the other statement that Jesus frequently made of hell said there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, hell is not going to be a place of fun. 
Hell is going to be a place of weeping. That's what the Bible says. I mean, how many of you like to weep? How many of you get up in the morning and go, yeah, I'm just going to weep today. You know, I'm looking forward to a good weep session today. Why would you? You wouldn't want to weep. People don't like to weep. People don't like to scream and grind their teeth in unrelieved torment. That's not something that, you know, is fun to me. But that's what hell is going to be like. It's a very real place. And it's a place of unrelieved torment for both the body and the soul. Look at the details of the punishment. When a non-believer dies, his soul leaves the presence of God and goes into hell. His soul probably doesn't go into the, necessarily the lake of fire that all unbelievers will be thrown in after the great white throne because he doesn't have a body. It's just his soul at that time. But it still goes to a place of torment. That's what's illustrated in Luke 16. When an unsaved person dies, his soul descends into a place called hell. Now, in the future, you have to understand there's going to be a resurrection of the bodies, both saved and unsaved. And at the time, the condemned will be given what they call a transcendent body. You'll have a, some form of, I don't want to say glorified body, but you'll have some form of a physical body with a supernatural tendency. Because it says that they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Christians are also going to be resurrected and they're going to be given a transcendent glorified body. When Christ was resurrected, remember, he walked around and he talked with people. Remember that? He ate, he did certain things. They saw him, but he also walked through doors. So it's going to be kind of cool for those that are saved. I mean, the kind of body we're going to have, it's going to be pretty incredible. But we don't want to forget that those who are unsaved, they're going to get a body too. And the reason they're going to get a body is so that they can experience this punishment and this horrifying things that go on in hell. That's why in Matthew 10, Jesus said this, Fear not them who kill the body, but rather fear him who is able to what? Destroy both the soul and body in hell. Some people teach, well, hell is just a state of existence. It's just, no, it's not. It's a very real place. Eternal bodies are going to be given to the damned as well as the saved. The saved will have a glorified body in heaven with God forever. The damned will suffer in those bodies in a place called hell forever. And the reason they have to give you, God has to give you a new body is because, you know what, You're, this body couldn't, couldn't, couldn't withstand what's going to happen in hell. Well, how do you know they're actually going to have a body? Well, a couple reasons. In Matthew 9, it says, the Lord said of hell that it's a place where the worm dies not. Remember that? The worm dies not. You know, when you put a body, and I know this is kind of a sick sermon this morning, but it's reality, okay? When you put a body into a grave, eventually, and you can spend all the money you want, unless you're kind of like in some kind of vapor or something, vacuum-locked casket, eventually, something's going to start, you know, eating away there. 
It's just going to happen. Well, it says here that when a body is put into a grave and the worms, whatever bugs, begin to consume it, the Lord Jesus says, hell is a place where the worm dies not. See, after all the flesh has gone off a body, what do you think happens to those worms or those bugs? They die. They go somewhere else. They're looking for more food. They go to the next plot. Okay. But in hell, it says there's no reason for the worm to leave or to die because it's going to be continually consuming without being consumed. Horrible place. The Lord is saying that the unrelieved torment of the body will go on forever in hell. Secondly, the Lord describes hell as a place where the fire is not quenched. I mean, it's one thing to die. I mean, I've seen people in, on, in video who die as a result of burning. They burn them to death. Horrible. I mean, I can't imagine a more horrific way to actually die than burning alive. But you know what? Eventually, the screams stop, the movement stops, and it's just a charred body. I mean, that sounds kind of gross, but that's what happens. Think of a place where you're burning, but you never get burned up. The burning never stops. Your body is never consumed. It's just continually burning. That's a place called hell. And the Bible also says that there's different degrees of punishment in hell. There's different degrees of punishment in hell. Hell will be a horrible place for anybody who's there, trust me. But some people will suffer more than others, if you can believe that or not. That's what the Bible says. Look over at Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29 says, Of how much more sober punishment suppose you that he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of his covenant an unholy thing. Of how much more sore punishment. In other words, that's, that's indicating that there's degrees of punishment. Those who received full knowledge of who Christ was and what he did for them, and they still rejected him. They're going to receive more severe punishment in hell as a result of their rejection. In Matthew 11, when Jesus condemned the people of the cities that rejected him, he said, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the, in the day of judgment than for you. Remember that? So there's degrees. Hell is not going to be tolerable for anybody. But Jesus was saying that it will appear to be more tolerable, tolerable for the people of Sodom who hadn't seen Christ's miracles nor heard his words than for those who witnessed everything that they witnessed and they still rejected him. John Gerstner said, hell will have such severe degrees that a sinner, were he able, would give the whole world if his sins could be just one less. Not a fun place. Lastly, the duration of the punishment. Hell's a place where not only different degrees of punishment, but it's going to go on forever. As I mentioned, the worm never dies, the fire never dies out. 
The sweet relief of light never comes. It's eternal. And I think hell is a place, because it is eternal, that eventually people will go insane there. It's, going to be, it's not going to be partying with a bunch of your friends, sitting around a bar, watching your favorite sport. That's not what it's going to be like. It's everlasting. In Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, the wicked will go away into everlasting punishment. Just like Christians have everlasting life. Nothing can take that away from us. We have everlasting life based on the work of Christ. Well, those who reject Christ will go away into everlasting punishment. Both heaven and hell are eternal, beloved. God never meant for hell to be for people. He made it, the Bible says, for the devil and his angels. But people chose to go to hell when they reject Christ. God's desire, God's loving compassion reaches out to all today and says, I desire you to be in heaven. I want you to have your sins forgiven. That's why I sent my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to die in your place. But if you reject that, if you reject what Christ has done, there's no hope. John Bunyan wrote this about hell. He said, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with you. While you're in this world, the very thought of a devil appearing to you makes your flesh tremble and your hair stand up on the backside of your head. But what will you do when not only the supposition of the devils appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell are going to be with you, howling and roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner. If after 10,000 years the end should come, there would be comfort. But here is your misery. Here you're going to be forever when you see what an innumerable company of howling devils you're amongst. Thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousands of years, as there are stars in the firmament, or drops in the sea, or sands on the seashore, yet you are to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever, how will it torment your soul? See, many people in the net are caught in the net of judgment. They're moving toward this inevitable separation on the shore and the, the good and the bad will be separated. One to eternal life, one to everlasting torment in the pit of hell. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go there. I thank God every day that he saved me. By his grace, he saved me out of that miry clay and set my feet on the rock who is Christ. 
I pray this morning, if there's any here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Ask God. Beg God. Plead with God to save your soul from this place of torment. Not a fun place. Well, in closing, Jesus finishes off this section with a proclamation. And he says in verse 51, he asks his disciples, he asks them a question. Have you understood what I just said to you? Have you understood these things? And they said, yeah, we, we, we understand. They answered affirmatively. The reason he asked them that is because he's really turning this over to them. He wants them to feel the same compassion that he felt when he sees the judgment of God coming and all these religious people and all these people of the world just being caught up in this net of judgment and eventually will spend eternity in hell. He wants them to understand the same thing that he sees. So he affirms, do you, do you guys understand this? Because this harvest is coming, this judgment is on its way. Do you understand what I've said? Are you ready to take this mantle and carry it on throughout the church age? And the disciples said, we understand what you said. We're ready. We're ready for the challenge. And look at what it says in verse 52. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. See, he just instructed the disciples about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about them. And he's kind of using a play on words here because back in Jesus' day, a scribe was a scholar of the Old Testament and a scribe knew the tradition and they called rabbi and all these things. They were very influential. But they had the wrong information. <laughs> Christ came to the Pharisees and the scribes and what did they do? They rejected him. So now Jesus is saying, I have so much compassion I can't leave it up to these guys. He's got, the, got it all gone. I, I have my own men now, my own disciples, my own scribes. I've taught you. And what I want you to do is to take what I've just shared with you, like a householder, and bring out the new and the old. In other words, don't just stick with the message that the scribes have taught you. That's important. But also expand on what I've shared with you about the kingdom. Broaden this. And then take it forth. Look at what he says. He says, who brings out his treasure. And the, 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 the Greek language there means to kind of fling it out, to throw it. He's think, bringing his treasure out of his house and he's just throwing it everywhere. And that's what he's commissioning the disciples to do. He's saying, take this message of the kingdom and take this message of judgment. Don't just go home to your little fishing boat and sit there and do nothing with it. See, that's what our call as a church is supposed to be. We're supposed to take this message of the gospel and not just learn more about it and dissect it and then just sit on it. We're supposed to take the message of the gospel out of these four walls to a lost and dying world who's on their way to hell and explain to them how they can have eternal life. That's what our commission is. Unfortunately, we're miserably failing on every front. When's the last time you 
sat down with somebody over a cup of coffee and explained to them the gospel of Christ. Explained to them the coming judgment. Explained to them their need of a Savior. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. This is what Paul said. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we are what? To persuade men. We're to persuade men. See, if you aren't concerned about the fact that people are dying and going to hell, basically, you're a very selfish individual. And Christians today, unfortunately, have seemed to lose any kind of concern for the unsaved. And I'm speaking to my own heart as well, beloved. I mean, this message kind of beat me up this week. I mean, you go to the gas station, you're talking to the attendant, you're talking about 49ers, you're talking about the Giants, you're talking about the price of gas, about world politics. Talk to them about everything. But what do we don't talk to them about? We don't talk to them about the life-giving message that we possess that's able to save their soul. Or the neighbor across the street, or the co-worker, or whatever. Today's message of the gospel has been dumbed down to the point so it won't insult anybody, so it won't offend anybody, so it fits nicely in a little politically, politically correct box. And churches, even on the evangelical standard, are falling into that trap. They don't want to offend anybody. Not that we're here to offend you. That's not what our deal is. But there are churches today that you can go into and they won't mention hell, they won't mention sin, they won't mention the blood of Christ or repentance or your need of a Savior. They just want everybody to be happy in Jesus. <coughs> They're too concerned about meeting their own congregation's felt needs. What do the people want to hear? What makes the people happy? What will bring them back next week? That's not comfort. That's not something God has called us to do. That's, that's really, you're damning those people. False comfort damns people. And we have to be willing to stand up and to tell the truth about what God's Word says. And do it in a compassionate, loving way. <coughs> but tell the truth. Father, we thank you today for your Word. Lord, we ask that you would continue to minister to our hearts Father, I thank you for the words of Christ that very clearly point out a place that is an eternal place. It's a place of fire. It's a place of torment. It's a place of utter darkness. <coughs> a place that we can't even conceive. The, the, the worst horror here on earth wouldn't even come close to this place the Bible describes as hell. And Lord, your word says, it, it tells us that most people are going there. And Father, we thank you that it's only by your grace, it's only by your, your working in our hearts that you saved us. God, there's nothing in us that's good enough to go to heaven. We all know that. Lord, we're, we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, that's why we support missionaries to go around the world. That's why we give to ministries that teach the word of God in other areas of the country and through radio and through even television. 
that aren't willing to dumb down or water down the gospel so that we could see the result of someone gloriously saved. Father, we pray this morning, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, has yet to see you transform their life, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would plead with you, that they would beg you to save them from their sin, to save them from the pending judgment that will be here one day. And Lord, for us who know you, I pray that you would burn into our hearts and into our minds a vision so horrible of hell that it would motivate us to reach out to those around us who are going there to share the life-changing gospel of Christ. That we could see them gloriously saved and delivered from the chains and torments of hell. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.